earlier this week, my wife Susan and pastors Eric and Mindy <clears throat> went to a church conference in St. Louis. And on their way back, they saw this billboard and took a photo of it. So there you have it. Real Christians love their enemies. So I guess the, the passage of scripture we're talking about today is getting at the heart of what it means to be a real Christian. And if you don't believe me, you can call 8554-TRUTH <laughs> just to verify it. <clears throat> we're looking at questions of Jesus in the season of Lent. And our question today is, if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? That's obviously a question of compassion. And when many of us think of the word compassion, we probably think of, of tender acts of mercy, like caring for someone when they're sick. But the heart of that word is obviously passion, which comes from the Latin word meaning to suffer. That's why during the season of Lent, especially when we get to Holy Week, we talk about the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus. So compassion means with suffering. There are a couple of ways you can define that. That compassion means the willingness to suffer with other people, to enter into their pain, to share their pain. And it means to suffer people, to put up with the suffering they cause. And it's this second understanding of compassion that would have been a very foreign idea to people in Jesus' day. It would have been very confusing, even offensive, to say that we should put up with other people's persecution, meanness, rudeness, and some would even say, does it not contribute to the problem? Are you not condoning such behavior by tolerating it and putting up with it? Does it not make it worse? Well, Jesus' question <clears throat> does not ignore the difficulty of practicing this kind of love, but it's also not the focus of the question. Listen to it again. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you have? The focus on the question is the reward of loving people who don't love us. This passage of scripture from Matthew's gospel comes in a section of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Antitheses. Six successive units that all begin with Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said. And then Jesus quotes an Old Testament law. He reinterprets the law and continues by saying, but I say to you. And, and honestly, the reinterpretation of Jesus calls for an even higher, more demanding obedience. So the passage we're looking at today is the last of the antitheses, and it kind of sums up all the ones that have come before it. Jesus says, but I say to you, or, or you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you shall 
love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let's pause on that for a moment. Love your neighbors in the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus, it's in the scriptures known as the Holiness Code. But it didn't mean what we mean today. It it didn't mean love all people. It meant love your fellow Israelite. That's how it had been interpreted. That's why in another story, a rich young ruler asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wasn't being contrary. That's what his tradition had taught him to ask. Who am I obliged to love? That was a good religious question to ask. But it's the second part of this, you have heard it said, that raises questions. Jesus also goes on, you've heard it said, you shall hate your enemies. That's not in the Bible. That's not a part of Old Testament law. It had become acceptable religious tradition. If we love our fellow Israelite, then it's okay to hate those who are opposed to God, those different from us. Isn't it interesting how religious tradition can make it acceptable to hate? But in all fairness, in all fairness, the people in Jesus' day who lived by this tradition would have quickly said, but, but that doesn't mean we hate people. No, 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 no. We don't hate people. We hate behaviors. It's kind of like people today who say we should love the sinner but hate the sin. How easy is it for you to love and hate at the same time? Especially when you're talking about the same person. Well, we don't need to debate the merit of this law and tradition. Jesus kind of takes care of that for us. He says, but I say to you, you shall love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, doesn't that make it better? Isn't that a lot easier to live with? Isn't that a much more appealing rule of life? I want to ask you to do something for a minute. I want to invite you to close your eyes. And you really do need to close your eyes for this brief exercise so that you can, you can tune out any distraction. If you're watching at home, I hope you'll do this. Just close your eyes, and I want you to picture right now somebody who has hurt you. Maybe it's been recent. And the reason it perhaps hurts is that somebody you care about, somebody you love or loved, and maybe they said something or did something that was deeply offensive. Maybe you're calling to mind somebody you have not thought of in a long time, preferably somebody who is still living, but you didn't resolve the hurt. As you picture that person, what are you feeling right now? Pay attention to your body. Is anything going on internally within you? Are muscles tightening? As you picture that person very clearly, let me ask you, will you love that person? Now open your eyes.
If you are saying to yourself right now, I don't know, then pat yourself on the back because you get it. You understand the significance and the weight of the words of Jesus. If you're saying to yourself, well, what does love look like in that situation? Then just know you understand exactly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. This is not easy stuff. What does it mean to love an enemy? That's part of what we're talking about. One thing that is perhaps helpful to note as we consider this is that we don't have to like in order to love. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we should be happy that Jesus did not say, like your enemies. It's almost impossible to like some people. Like is a sentimental and affectionate word. How can we be affectionate toward a person whose avowed aim is to crush our very being and place innumerable blocks in our path? How can we like a person who is threatening our children and bombing our homes? This is impossible. But Jesus recognized that love is greater than like. Indeed it is. Jesus is talking about the very love of God who sends the Son upon the good and the evil, who sends rain upon the just and the unjust alike. Why? Because God is willing to suffer us. God is willing to face our unlovingness and refuse to quit loving God's self. This is agape love. Agape love doesn't come from emotion. It comes from an act of the will. So no doubt, part of what it means to love the enemy is not repaying in kind the treatment we have received. That is a significant part of what it means to love the enemy. When we love an enemy, we refuse to ridicule the other. We refuse to berate, belittle, and seek the ruin of the other. Frankly, it means we refuse to become like our enemies. That the best retaliation we can ever take to a wrong that has been done to us is to keep loving anyway. This is what the ancient proverb meant. If your enemies are hungry, give them bread to eat. And if they're thirsty, give them water to drink. For you will heap coals of fire on their heads and the Lord will reward you. Nobody can take from you and me the ability to show compassion. Now, something else it means to love the enemy is not canceling others. That's a big deal in our culture today, isn't it? We live in a cancel culture. When things are said and done that challenge the thinking of others, 
and they get canceled out and hold on before you think I'm getting political. I'm not talking about television shows. I'm talking about what you and I do on Facebook and on social media and how we unfriend, how we block, how we remove and how we cancel a relationship because it's too dang difficult to stay in it. Oh, it's just easy today to cancel. Now, I get it. That's why I'm not on Facebook. (laughs) I totally get it. Because you think, I've only got so much turmoil I can live with. And sometimes for our own mental and emotional health, we have to remove ourselves. But, but, but there is a difference from removing ourselves and canceling out the other. You never know what a string of connection calling someone on their birthday, sending someone a Christmas card, saying, I just want you to know I'm thinking of you. I hope you're doing well. You never know what a string of connection can lead to in becoming a lifeline to somebody down the road. And then Jesus makes very plain what it means to love the enemy. He says, you pray for those who persecute you. If you really get this, you're going to groan. Let's all groan together. You know why? Because it sounds easy. It sounds easy to pray for somebody. I'm not talking about the prayers where you say, for God's sake, may that person get what's coming to them. Uh, That's a prayer. I can't deny that. It's a prayer. It's just not a prayer Jesus prayed. If you pray like Jesus... You pray for the well-being of the other person. You pray for their good, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. And here's what happens. And this is what is so difficult about praying for the enemy because it changes us. We begin to see the other as a human being. And that's when the change starts to happen because we begin to realize no human being is born to hurt people. No human being is created by their own natural God-given devices to do harm to other people. So when somebody hurts another person, it reflects something is broken in that person. And that means they need as much compassion as we do. As the old saying goes, hurting people hurt people. And when we see each other as human beings, we begin to get in touch with our own brokenness, our causes of hurt, our need for forgiveness, and we find a connection. Now, I'm not saying any of this is easy, but I am talking about what Jesus shows, and it raises now a fundamental question for us. Why? Why do it? Why pray for the enemy? Why show love to somebody who does not deserve our love? And one of the reasons is that our world needs us to love this way. Our world is in need 
of greater compassion. Our world needs people who will take the courage to break the cycles of hatred and division that rules too much of our society. In St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, Ireland, there's a display called the Reconciliation Door. It goes back to 1492, the same year that Columbus sailed for America. There were two feuding families in Dublin and a fierce fight broke out between them. One of the families got the upper hand on the other family. There was a lot of bloodshed. The other family ran to escape and they went to a basement room in the cathedral and locked themselves in. The other family chased after them and began pounding on the door. Come out, they said, let's, let's make peace. The family inside said, yeah, right. As Soon as we open this door, you're gonna slaughter us. So the family locked out, cut a little hole in the middle of the door. I think we've got that picture. Let's put it back up there again. You can see that hole in the door. And the head of the family reached a hand through the door. What a risky move. It could have been cut off. But somebody on the inside of the door shook the hand and opened the door. It's on display in the cathedral today to remind us that reconciliation often requires taking risk. It often requires taking risk. Being the first to initiate, to apologize, to go to the other. And our world needs this. At the 2020 uh, National Prayer Breakfast, Arthur Brooks, professor at Harvard, was the keynote speaker. And in the address that morning, <clears throat> he said, the biggest crisis facing our nation is the crisis of contempt and polarization that's tearing our societies apart. And he called this crisis the greatest opportunity we have ever had as people of faith to lift our nations up and to bring our people together. And then he focused on what he called Jesus' subversive and counterintuitive call to love our enemies. Now remember, the president of the United States was on one side, the vice president was on the other, and a room full of Washington politicians he said, how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? Make it personal, my friends. Jesus didn't say tolerate your enemies. He said, love your enemies. Answer hatred with love. And then closed with this zinger. Ask God to give you strength to do this hard thing, to go against your human nature, to follow Jesus' teaching. <clears throat> Ask God to take political contempt from your heart. Sometimes, when it's just too hard, ask God to help you fake it. Well, guess what? Faking it is legitimate. Fake it till you make it. I think sometimes I make loving people way too hard because I wait until I feel like loving them, until I decide to like them until they do something that shows me they are a little bit repentant of whatever they did. And Jesus says, don't wait. It doesn't matter if your heart's in it or not. Just do it. Because you never know 
that when you act lovingly, you might begin to feel more loving. And you never know when somebody else receives love that they might begin to show more love. But there's another reason to love this way. The reward is not just that it helps our world. The other reward is it helps us. Jesus even identified that. He said, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you so that, now watch this closely, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Some people interpret that to mean that in order for us to have the status of children of God, we have to love this way. Loving an enemy is what makes us worthy of being children of God. But there are scholars who say that misses the point. That's not what Jesus means. Jesus is saying here, you are already children of God. Let me remind you of what it means to act that way. There was a movie starring John Goodman many years ago, I think it was like in the early 90s, called King Ralph. It begins with all of the members of the royal family gathering for a very rare portrait, and an electrical accident happens, and they all die. And researchers have to be, I know it's not supposed to be funny, but it's funny, it's a comedy. Researchers have to start figuring out who's in line to be the king of England. And much to their shock, they find out it's an American named Ralph Jones who has, was recently fired as a lounge singer in Las Vegas. <laughs> he loves bowling and drinking beer. And so he moves into Buckingham Palace and he's, he's boorish and uncouth. But his valet is Peter O'Toole who begins to teach him every day what it means to act like royalty. This is what Jesus does. Jesus comes to you and me, first of all, to remind us we are royalty. We are children of the King of heaven and earth. And let me show you what it means to act this way. It means to love those who persecute us, who hurt us, because this is what we need so that we don't go through life holding on to bitterness and resentment that just drags down our identity. It's how we become whole. Did you catch the end of the passage of Jesus' words? Be perfect just like your father in heaven is perfect. Well, I'm quitting now, I don't know about you. Perfect? Who can be perfect? The Greek word for perfect is teleos. It doesn't mean be perfect in behavior, it means be whole, be whole, as God in heaven is whole. Seek wholeness. When we love in a way that begins to rid us of bitterness, we move toward greater wholeness. Again, this is what Martin Luther King Jr. meant when he said, I've decided to stick with love for I know that love is ultimately the only answer to our problems. 
for I've seen too much hate to want to hate. Because every time I see it, I know that it does something to the faces of others and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. Maybe it is a selfish thing to say it, but I believe it is appropriate that the best thing we can ever do for ourselves is to love in such a way. When Pastor Mindy and I talked about the message for today recently, she began reflecting on this in a personal way. She told me something about her life I did not know. She said, I think I'm going to share this at Midtown when I conclude the sermon. And I said, Mindy, I think everybody needs to hear this story. So let's listen as she shares this in our recording from Friday. Well, some of you know my story, but if you don't, I have been wrestling with this question that Jesus asked ever since I was a young child. My mom died when I was two, she had cancer, and a few years later, my dad got remarried. And when he got remarried, he married someone who also had children, but who created a family dynamic where they were in and I was out, and that quickly devolved into a childhood full of emotional, spiritual, and social abuse. And this abuse really created these deep wounds in me that I carried to adulthood. It made me this very bitter and angry person. And so when I heard Jesus asking this question of, why can't you love your enemy? I thought, because it's impossible. It felt unfair that Jesus would ask me to love someone who had hurt me so deeply. I think one of the reasons it felt so impossible or so unfair is that I had a really skewed view of what this love toward a difficult person even looked like. For me, love meant restoration of the relationship. I mean, I heard that from everyone in my life. You just got to forgive your dad, let him back in. Life is short. You're going to have regret. But you know, that never felt right to me. It never felt like it actually honored what I experienced and kept me safe going forward. But the thing that also didn't feel right was this inner state of bitterness, this inner state of darkness that I was cultivating. I was looking for Jesus in all of this fury that I was carrying around, and I felt that Jesus was saying, actually, there's a better way. There's a real love. You just got to start to heal. And so I did the work to start healing and it was long, it was difficult, but as I started healing, what I realized is that that healing did not mean we were gonna have a restored relationship. It did mean reconciliation, but it was a reconciliation inside myself. You know, Pastor Rob talked about that risk that comes with the act of reconciliation. And sometimes I think that risk can be just as scary when it's the work we're doing as when we're talking to another person. Because anger, when we carry that around, anger is energizing. Anger motivates us. Anger provides a really nice cover for the tender, vulnerable things that we might be feeling. But it's only when we get under that anger and see what's beneath that we can actually start to cultivate that love that Jesus talks about. Now, the story doesn't end there. 
Because as I started to heal, as I maybe reached even a place of healing, if you had asked me what the thing I was the most afraid of in the world was, I wouldn't have told you any of the typical fears. I would have told you the thing I was most scared of facing was seeing my dad in real life again. Because I was just sure if that happened, I was sure if we were in the same room, then all the good work that I did would come undone in an instant. And I was sure as much as I believed in God's power, in God's love for me, I was sure that this was the one place of my life that not even God could touch. But then a couple years ago, I found myself face to face with that fear. My grandma had died, my dad's mom, and it was really important to me that I went to her funeral. We were pretty close when she was alive, and I knew that he would be there too. And as I went to that funeral, so afraid, so anxious, and as I stood right in front of my father, this person who had wounded me, what I expected to happen didn't. I gave him a hug. I made small talk with him. And maybe most importantly, I felt compassion. I didn't feel that fury and anger that I was so sure I was gonna come face to face with, but Jesus was letting me love him. Now, I wanna be so clear, we didn't restore our relationship going forward. We are still not in relationship with each other. But Jesus has taught me that sometimes loving the person who's difficult to love is more about what's happening in us, is more about what's happening between us and God than about what's happening between us and them. We don't always get to have that happy ending where we have restoration, where we become friends again or in regular communication. But what we can have, no matter what those circumstances look like, is an opportunity to be people whose lives are anchored in love, anchored in forgiveness, anchored in compassion, because that is the kind of life that Jesus wants us to have and that Jesus makes possible. I thought you would enjoy hearing that story too. And I like it because it lets us know pastors are people too. We all deal with our own brokenness. And I like it because it's not a story that has a perfect little period or exclamation point on the end of it. I like to think it's more of a dot, dot, dot. You don't know what might happen in the future there. And when we love in such a way that's not easy to do, we, we make possible a future. It doesn't guarantee it. We just give God space to work because this is how God loves us. God loves us while we were yet sinners, says Paul. Not once we got sin under control, while we were yet. God loves us. And when we receive the gift and the symbol of that forgiveness and holy communion, think about what we're doing. We are ingesting it. We are eating it. It becomes a part of us. It gets in our bloodstream. It goes to our brains that affects the way we think. It gets into our hearts, it gets into our muscles and our hands and feet that can act. It loves through us.